the vision of Bioflex Cities addresses just about every economic, social, and environmental concern. We know that, you know, planting trees, we know that just about anything that a city can do to make itself more natureful will make it more resilient and more resilient in the face of things like natural disasters and social trauma. Welcome to Innovation Uncovered, a podcast from Invesco, QQQ, and T-Brand at The New York Times. It's about the ideas and discoveries driving our culture forward, from how we play, to what we consume, to how we connect. We started making Innovation Uncovered before the pandemic hit, and in the last few months, our thinking about what innovation is, and why it's important, especially now, began to shift. Some of the most extraordinary feats of progress are happening right here, close to home, where most of us have spent more time than we ever imagined. These innovations are changing things like how we make wine, watch films, and think about sports. Today, we're going to start our series by exploring a design movement that's reshaping the way we live indoors and even how we plan our cities. They call it biophilia. I'm Corey S. Powell. I'm the former editor-in-chief of Discover Magazine, and as a science writer, I've covered everything from dark matter to the origin of life. And I'm joined by my lovely, brilliant, and as yet unintroduced co-host. Hi, Corey. Hi, Kristen. Yes, I'm Kristen Meinzer. I'm a culture critic and journalist. And for the next six episodes, I'll be out in the field. Well, the virtual field, at least, thanks to social distancing. Bringing a little science and a little culture to conversations about the people and ideas reshaping so many aspects of our lives today. Kristen, before we get into the story, I just want to acknowledge to our listeners that we're recording from two different places, and uh, we're connecting via video chat. It's unfortunately a kind of familiar scene for a lot of us at this point. Yeah, and I have to say, my home office, as you can see, it's uh, it's pretty sad looking. <laughs> there are no windows, very little light. But I got to say, Corey, the view from your screen looks a little happier. Are those plants I see there? Yeah, you know. I should tell you, I am in my basement. I am in a windowless office, <laughs> just like you are. But I have a little garden right next to me. I have some houseplants. I have a little herb garden. They're all supported by a grow light. So I have some greenery. I have a little bit of nature here. And I have to tell you, it makes a big difference. It gives a psychological boost. Having my little syngonium and my little chiflera flourishing over there, it makes me feel better. And it's not just all in my mind. I came across this 2020 study out of the University of, of Hyogo in Japan that says that even having a small plant on your desk can reduce stress. And part of what I love about the study, the title of the study is Potential of a Small Indoor Plant on the Desk for Reducing Office Workers' Stress. So you don't, you don't even have to wonder, what, hey, yeah, hey, hey, what does that mean? It just means that academically what I'm experiencing seems to be a, a real thing. Yeah. It also sounds like whether you knew it or not, you've planned out your basement in a biophilic way. I definitely didn't know it. I was just going by intuition that I knew that these green plants made me feel good. But, you know, it's nice to have some academic validation that what I'm doing really is scientifically verifiable. Reporting this story about biophilia, I talked to a few people who are constantly thinking about bringing plant life into indoor spaces. My name is Bethany Borrell, and I'm an architect and interior designer with a kind of interest and geek out a little bit about biophilic design. 
I connected with Bethany Burrell to learn about a particular kind of interior design that is quietly revolutionizing how we live. She doesn't just kind of have an interest in this area, which is known as biophilic design. She's one of the innovative architects leading the charge. She's worked on projects such as biophilic high-rise buildings, a girls' school, an affordable housing building, and plenty more. And Bethany kindly agreed to be our guide, so to speak. The first thing that you see when you come off of our elevator bank is a long hallway that's a gallery, has large terrariums that are filled with plants that are thriving within these glass terrariums. We also have art on the walls, photographs of Angkor Wat, you know, referencing how nature does take back our environment at some point. So really, there's a moment of contemplation, of quiet and calm. Doesn't that sound like a dream? What could this beautiful place be? Well... It's actually an office, Bethany's office. She's a senior associate at Cook Fox Architects in New York City, and she describes the space so well because she designed it. Once they get to the reception desk, that's where views of our east and west terraces become apparent. Having a direct view to a natural element outside is an orienting tool to help you understand where your body is in space. Our bodies are always trying to figure out what our boundaries are and where we are. And so those views of daylight and and views of nature are pretty key for that. Are you feeling calmer already? It turns out the reason you're feeling so calm and centered right now isn't just Bethany's soothing voice. It's because of biophilia. It's the innate human affinity for natural systems and natural processes. So it's something that's ingrained in us, in our DNA. The term biophilic design was popularized in the 1980s by E.O. Wilson, the naturalist and writer. Over time, this theory of biophilia was organized into something called biophilic patterns. These are essentially design elements that architects can use to make indoor spaces more biophilic. Some of these elements are pretty straightforward. Visual connection with nature, thermal and airflow variability, presence of water, dynamic and diffuse light. While other elements are a little more abstract. Complexity and order, prospect, refuge, mystery, risk and peril, and awe. I love that. Awe. But... What does it mean to incorporate something like risk and peril into architecture, for example? For those who've been to the Guggenheim Museum in Manhattan, and you stand up close to the railing in the center of the museum, you'll notice it's just a little shorter than most railings. And I don't know about (laughs) you, but when I get that close, I get get that rush of risk. But it, it heightens your senses. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, I've had that same experience at that museum. The building is like a large undulating spiral. As you reach the top of the spiral and peer over the edge down to the lower levels, you feel that exhilarating feeling, which really lights you up without making you worry about your safety, of course. Architects have a lot of nature-inspired tools at their disposal to influence how we respond. Light, the play of light, 
the availability of natural light, natural patterns. Our brains respond to natural patterns in the same way as they would seeing them out in a forest versus a panel of millwork. So it's the shape, it's the scalar shifts, it's the relationship of volumes in the space. Um, Acoustics within the space have a lot to do with it. As Bethany just hinted at, biophilic design goes beyond just the visual. Architects also have to consider how a space will sound. If you think about an open office plan, you know, you get used to hearing your neighbor. And so that doesn't end up distracting you as much if you hear your neighbor speaking. But if somebody who sits all the way on the other side of the office comes over and says something loud enough that you can hear, it will more likely than not interrupt your concentration and it'll take you a little while to get back on track. And, and it's about 20 minutes that it takes for that to happen. So it's a pretty serious, you know, acoustics are a pretty serious concern. So maybe right now you're working from home. Office chatter isn't really a problem. But something you might be noticing if you live alone, for example, is that silence isn't great for productivity either. The natural world isn't silent after all. You know, if you go too far with sound dampening, it almost becomes really eerie. We as humans are organized so that we expect a certain amount of sound. And so if there's too much white noise, it can start to, you know, trigger confusion or anger. Or if there's not enough white noise, it can have kind of a similar effect of of confusion or it'll, it'll feel eerie. I think we've all kind of been in one of those rooms where you walk in and you could hear a pin drop and it's very creepy. Given everything we've been through in the last few months, it's no surprise that so many of us are craving the outdoors and appreciating the basic aspects of nature. How the sun feels on your skin, the beauty of leaves rippling in the breeze. But even in non-isolation times, people spend about 90% of our lives inside. And, as Bethany Burrell's work shows, now people are waking up to something we've been feeling for a while about life indoors. Something's missing. And that something is nature. There's been a significant amount of scientific research around the physiological and psychological benefits of biophilic design. There's been proven absenteeism reduction, presenteeism increase, cortisol level reduction. You know, for students, if you're designing a school, information retention increases. They're able to learn better by some of these strategies. And just to go a little deeper on these benefits, people just really need that little bit of nature during the day. One study published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology Applied found that just adding plants to an otherwise sparse office could increase workers' feelings of well-being, boosting productivity by as much as 15%. Even more critical, from a business standpoint, all of these wellness effects can have economic advantages. 90% of what companies spend their money on are the employees right? Rent is a fraction of their yearly expenditure. It's really the people, the healthcare for those people, you know, all of that, that takes up the bulk of what companies are spending. If some of the design strategies that you can put into place that are not necessarily more expensive than you would do otherwise helps to mitigate some of the absenteeism or uh, ability to focus, or kind of general contentment or general 
uh, happiness, which then leads to retention. That's, that's a huge financial benefit to that company. You know, Kristen, this is exactly what I find so fascinating about biophilia. It's a very personal thing. It's a psychological thing, but it's also an economic thing with clear, tangible benefits. Exactly. It's not just about warm, fuzzy feelings. So here's another interesting example I came across. The city of Sacramento did a study at one of their call centers, and they found that the employees there with views of nature managed their calls 6 to 7% faster than their coworkers without a view. So here's a hard number. They crunched the hard number, and they found that based on that improvement, they could save $2,990 per employee per year if only a people there had some nice greenery to look at. And how much does that nice greenery cost, Corey? So here's the cool thing. Just about $1,000 per employee. So dollar for dollar, you're better off giving them a nice green view. And if those employees are at all like me, they're probably much happier employees too. Despite all of this proof that biophilia is good for us, both for wellness and business, it hasn't been a focal point of a lot of modern architecture, especially in big spaces like offices and schools. But Bethany and Cook Fox are part of a new innovative cohort of thinkers who are elevating biophilia to the forefront of architectural design. I'm really excited to say that there's been this resurgence in the past you know, 10 years or so, a little bit more. And now consumers are more aware of it. And so you have clients that come in and ask about it and have heard the term before. And so the more people learn about it, the more they experience it and, and see and feel the benefits of it, the more it'll take off. So it, it is a pretty exciting time right now to be digging in even deeper. It's also a really interesting time to start thinking about how we can incorporate more biophilic principles into our own indoor spaces. Because, surprise, all of these design principles also work in your home, not just in office buildings. It's something Bethany has been noticing a lot lately on video calls with colleagues and clients. Which is really fascinating because it gives you a little glimpse into people's personal lives by the backdrop that's behind them. You know, their background changes over time as they try to find the right spot. And it's really amazing how many people end up right next to a window. You know, mm -hmm. either they're looking out the window or they're set up beside it so they can turn their head and look out the window when they need a break from their screen. That desire to be near the window is more than just liking natural light. Bethany told me that it's also tied to one of the patterns of biophilia. A couple of the patterns of, of biophilic design that I tend to incorporate into most of my projects are that of prospect and that of refuge. Back before we were able to build these types of structures that we build now, humans would find caves that provided refuge so you knew that no predator was going to come and attack you while you were sitting there or sleeping, but also provided prospect so that you could look out and see the horizon and see what weather was coming, what predators were coming, where color was, because that indicates where food is. So this, this concept of prospect and refuge is one that's really easy uh, to apply and understand on the interior level. And it's the same reason that people are lugging their laptops and monitors and kitchen table over to the window is to give that opportunity of prospect because it helps to calm us down. It reduces our cortisol levels. It reduces our stress levels. In some ways, your home might be designed with comfort in mind, more so than any office would be. 
But there is one thing Bethany mentioned that might be harder to adapt. A lot of people have been changing the lighting in their homes because when you're sleeping, it's a very different type of light that you respond to than when you need to be awake and alert. And so a lot of people have been asking me for recommendations on like color temperature changing task lights or how to layer lighting within a space because that's another kind of key element that our homes aren't necessarily set up to help us perform in the way that our office would. Natural daylight is probably your best option. But if you don't have a window nearby, think about where the light is coming from, how bright it is, and what color it is. Kristen, all this talk about biophilia has me thinking. As much as I enjoy being in my basement with my green plants, I miss the outdoors. I miss the outdoors in New York City. And I feel like I need to reconnect a little bit more with urban nature. Yeah. And there's way more of it than I think people outside of New York even realize. I mean, our city is covered in trees, in front gardens, in little plants coming up and growing through the sidewalk. Honestly, New York City doesn't even hold a candle to some of the other cities in terms of how they're embracing biophilia. I'm thinking, for instance, of Singapore, which is really not a place that people normally associate with greenery. But What an astounding and unexpected example of a green cityscape it's become. Looking at images of Singapore, it just blows my mind. It looks like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Like, you know, when you go there, you're being dropped in the middle of a leafy canopy of trees, of flora, of fauna, of all the beautiful things we think of when we think of nature in Southeast Asia. And that beautiful green identity didn't all happen by accident, of course. When Singapore gained independence in the 1960s, the new government intentionally tried to shape the former colony into a garden city. In recent years, they've even shifted and expanded their view. It's not just a garden city, but a city in a garden. What a way to conceive of a city, especially a city that's so dense. Not just dense, one of the densest in the world, and getting denser. Between 1986 and 2010, the population of Singapore almost doubled from 2.7 million to 5 million people. And amazingly, in that same time, it's gotten greener. Green space in the city has increased from 36 to 47%. That's phenomenal. I mean, Singapore is really a model to the world, but it turns out they're not alone. Biophilia is being enlisted in cities around the globe. Right, because it makes sense. Infusing biophilia into the cityscape helps with all kinds of practical things like stormwater management. It makes the city more attractive to foreign investors, makes it into a place that more people want to visit, And honestly, it makes it into a nicer place to live. Yeah, biophilia isn't just for our home offices or basement offices. It works on a city scale to make life better. Innovation. You hear the word every day, but what does it mean? Invesco QQQ believes that innovation stems from the desire to create a fundamental change that leads to greater possibilities for all. Invesco QQQ allows you to access the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one ETF, supporting the innovators that are changing the world. Yeah, Biophilic City is a city that puts nature at the center of its design and planning. So we argue that to, that to lead a happy, healthy, meaningful life really requires that you have contact with nature. That's Tim Beatley. 
I turned to him to help me understand the larger scale version of biophilia. My name is Tim Beatley, and I teach here at the University of Virginia in the Urban and Environmental Planning Department in the School of Architecture. In addition to his teaching title, Tim is the founder of the Biophilic Cities Network. Since it was founded in 2013, 22 cities have joined. They span the globe from Phoenix, Arizona, to Wellington, New Zealand, to Panama City, Panama, to Singapore. Tim and his Biophilic Cities Network have brought the efforts of these far-flung places together to help radically change the ways cities think about their design and development. And it really comes down to your access to nature. It's not just something that you can get once or twice a year on a vacation or a holiday. It has to be all around us. It has to be where we live and work. And we have to experience that every day, if not every hour. That's something I hadn't thought about before. It's great to know that nature is out there, that we could, you know, always go to a park or hop on the train to go for a hike, for example. But it's something entirely different to feel immersed in it without having to try. So, yes, we love parks. We need parks. But the vision of Biophilic Cities is one of immersive nature. And it's really the, the notion that we should see the entire city as the park. We should see the entire city as, as the, the forest, as the garden. Oh, I love that. Uh, so that we're not having to, to, to go to visit nature in particular places. We're living with nature. Nature is all around us. We're immersed in nature. And that, that's ultimately the vision that we're after here. And that's one of the most important elements of a biophilic city, that immersion in nature. To explain this, Tim thinks of it like we once thought of the food pyramid. We sometimes talk about this idea of a nature pyramid, um, which uh, is one way of kind of understanding what constitutes our nature diet, if you, if you will. We do believe that we need that connection with the natural world. So the stuff at that, that base of that pyramid uh, are the things, the nature around us every day, every hour, the, um, the trees, the birds. And, and it's multisensory, by the way. It's not just the, the things that we see. It's then as you move up the pyramid, there are certainly, you know, national parks and things where you might go to visit that might require a bus ride. We do want a city where it's possible to reach nature and public transit. But we do have to sort of start with the neighborhood scale and the, the place where people are living, living and working. One of the most innovative aspects of biophilic design, whether it's in your home, your office, or your entire neighborhood, is the focus on well-being. We've touched on it before, but these architects and city planners really have the whole human in mind. And we have so much compelling evidence that having nature around us affects just about every aspect of the, the human being, the, the physiology, the, the mental health, it changes our mood in a, in a positive way. It enhances cognitive performance. Uh, greener, more natureful schools, you know, lead to better test scores for kids, happier kids and happier teachers. There's even evidence, actually, that with nature around us, we're more generous. We're more likely to be cooperative. Evidence coming out of economics that we're, we're more likely to think longer term if we have nature around us. So you can make a pretty strong argument that in the presence of nature, we are better, better human beings, actually. You know, the pandemic has really opened our eyes to the benefits of biophilic cities. They prioritize nature all around us, meaning you don't have to go and crowd a city park or beach to immerse yourself in the flora and fauna. Instead, it's right outside, and perhaps also inside your door. Some cities are experimenting with biophilia in real time. 
They're opening roadways to give pedestrians more space to be outside. Oakland, for example, closed down 10% of the total street mileage in the city. That's 72 miles so that pedestrians had more space to walk around and socially distance properly. Cities like Minneapolis, Berlin, Bogota, Paris, Montreal, and Portland decided to turn car lanes over to pedestrians as well. Where we have these sort of concerns about the inability to social distance, I think we can be much more clever. And, and of course, having, having more space, I think more cities are tilting in that direction. And Tim thinks that these temporary changes could spur something more permanent in the future. I think cities, I think we're going we're going to be maybe readjusting, I hope, the priorities we give to certain things and maybe reducing the emphasis on, on cars and, and automobility. I think often the, the reason we haven't done this more often is that it's a lack of imagination to some degree and perhaps a, a lack of, of compelling models and seeing what other cities have done. Some folks now might even be rethinking their feelings on cities in general. I mean, if we need that strong connection to nature, what's the benefit of living in the concrete jungle at all? Well, I asked him about this, whether or not cities really are important to maintain. And here's what he told me. Cities, cities do many things for us, of course. They provide people with you know, remarkable economic opportunities. There are real reasons why we want to be in cities, and we're not going to turn this global trend around anyway. I, for one, look forward to getting back out there and exploring the biophilic elements of my city once it's safe to do so. But for now, I know I'm going to try to incorporate biophilic design into my own indoor spaces in small ways, and perhaps more of my video calls will involve biophilia, like when Bethany's cat joined us for the interview. <laughs> Sorry, she got back That's into okay. the room. <laughs> That's some nature right there next to you, yeah. <laughs> a little, a little biophilic element. So this whole conversation about biophilia makes me feel inspired to do more of that in my own life. I don't think I can get away with bringing a cat in, as nice as that sounds. But, uh, but you know, what I've been thinking about more is, you know, I have a backyard that's mostly concrete. I'd love to bring some water into there, try to find more ways to bring outdoor light into this apartment, maybe even try to find ways to bring more sort of full spectrum light down here into the basement. You know, it, listening to these stories makes me realize that we don't have to be as cut off as we have been. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking my little closet studio... Maybe I could bring some plants in here. Yes, why not? You know, in my first job, I was in a windowless office and I put a giant painting of an outdoor window on the wall and it made me feel good. I didn't know I was a pioneer in biophilic design, but apparently I was. <laughs> well, at this point, I think maybe we all can be. We can all put a little bit more biophilic design into our worlds. Well, and I like the idea that when you're less alienated from nature, that maybe you're a slightly kinder person, maybe you're a slightly more connected person. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't mind being like that. Yeah, I, I, I need to become nicer. I'm going to get some plans. <laughs> Innovation Uncovered is a podcast from Invesco QQQ in partnership with T-Brand at the New York Times. 
Over the rest of the season, we'll be discovering the innovations happening in all of your favorite things. Film, music, staying connected, basketball, and for our next episode, wine. I think what we're seeing is a blurring of the lines between categories. Beer, cider, wine, spirits are starting to communicate a lot more. Even in the wine world, there was some kind of insularity where people wouldn't be hesitant to share ideas and breakthroughs. And now it's like, no, we're all in this together. Subscribe to Innovation Uncovered wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Innovation Uncovered is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. From tech innovators to lesser-known biotech and media companies, Invesco QQQ is more than just a tech fund. It's an ETF that allows you to access the NASDAQ 100, some of today's most innovative companies that are changing the world. To learn more about what this ETF can mean for your portfolio, visit Invesco.com QQQ. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies traded on the NASDAQ. You cannot invest directly in an index. Risks are involved with investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs are subject to risks similar to those of stocks. Investments focused in the technology sector are subject to greater risk and are more greatly impacted by market volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors Incorporated.